Hello, and welcome to another episode of Not Quite Great Books, a TV podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Daniel Hanley, and joining me on the other line, now that he's back from getting beat up by an invisible jackal in the bathroom, it's John McMahon. Hi, Danielle. It was really rough. Uh, no one believes my story. They think I was just in there all by myself, but I can promise you that jackal really, really fucked me up. <laughs> invisible or not. Invisible or not, that jackal really wreaks some havoc. <laughs> Absolutely. So, so, so appropriate for this episode. Totally appropriate. So we are here. We're discussing Moon Knight Episode 2, Summon the Suit. It's directed by Justin Benson and Aaron Moorhead, and then it's written by Jeremy Slater, who's credited for the Written for TV by uh, Michael Kasseline, and Alex Minahan, who has the executive story editor credit. And John, do you want to give us the IMDb summary? With little time to react, Stephen is thrust into a war of the gods as a mysterious partner arrives. Really just, like, succinct. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so what's interesting about the IMDb summary, I think, here is that there are multiple possibilities for who the mysterious partner is, right? It could be Steven or it could be Layla or it could be Arthur, question mark, probably not. Yeah, it could be Conchu, right? It could be Conchu, yeah. This is a show with multiple personalities and there are multiple options. (laughs) Yes, there, there, there sure is. So short, succinct, but I suppose it contains multitudes. Oh, boy. Um, Okay, so let's dive into the main discussion. We're going to do something a little bit different for the main discussion today. I think we'll focus on one or two questions instead of walking through a bunch of the different pieces of the plot. Um, John, do you want to say a little bit about how we arrived at this decision? It's a way to make sure that Danielle and I stay friends while talking about (laughs) Moon Knight. It's, more seriously, a way to not just do another version of Danielle likes this a lot and John mostly doesn't like this. Yeah. um, That leaves us and probably however number of listeners that exist um, more more likely to be multitudes indeed. Um, (laughs) Well, if they all contain several wolves, then I think multitudes might actually be correct in a descriptive sense that way. Good callback. You're welcome. Um, I'm, I'm a pro. I, you know, it doesn't matter what we're talking about. I could do this all day. <laughs> a different MC. <laughs> I don't know about that. Uh, so we, we don't want to do the same meta discussion of why do I not like this, why Danielle mm-hmm. does, or me just complaining and kind of um, compelling Danielle to take up the position of a defender of the show or of the Marvel uh, entire industry more broadly. <laughs> and so I think we are going to try to focus the general discussion a little more tightly. Yeah. And I think like it's both the you complaining and me compelled to defend and then me being compelled to defend, which like amplifies the need to like have the complaint heard. Right. It's this like reciprocal whirlpool. Yeah. That's like not particularly fun for either of us. Cause mostly we like, we like to actually discuss things in depth instead of just like sparring. Correct. Um, (laughs) One might say, one might say that Danielle enjoyed accusing me of being Plato and Aristotle, but um, generally this, (laughs) this sparring is not entirely the point or what we like about doing this or what we like about each other or exactly exactly <laughs> we have other friends that we I, far away. I, <laughs> <laughs> that's staying in and, um and i one of the I things though no other way. <laughs> i will say danielle is that i appreciate that our version of sparring is like you dragging me as a platonist i think that's really <laughs> lovely it's like it's highbrow yeah exactly <laughs> 
Okay, no. I, won't, I won't. I won't follow that. Up. I'm trying. I'm trying to be genuinely generous instead <laughs> okay. of snarky generous. So, Danielle, let me pose then a question to okay. you because I think that you are more um, appropriately suited to answer it than I am. And that is, what do you think? I mean, one of the things you said as we were preparing to talk about this show, even before we started recording, before I started watching. We talked about this a little bit last week, Mm -hmm. and there are certain elements in this episode that make it very, very clear that this is not a show that is connected to the MCU more broadly, other than the fact that there are Moon Knight comics in the MCU canon, right? So what do you then think Marvel is trying to do by making something that is different and that is not connected to the broader MCU arcs and trajectories and storylines and so forth? Yeah, I think that there is a, my sense of it is like the, the, like the weight of Marvel, its expansiveness, the weight of the MCU is like becoming quite burdensome and also becoming a, an obstacle for entry. Um, and we talked about this, I think a little bit during our Loki run, but not yeah. a ton or maybe a little bit in our meta episode, but like. I didn't start watching MCU movies with, like, Iron Man, or I, like, didn't become a fan of the MCU and, like, follow the entire trajectory. I sort of, like, stumbled into seeing Black Panther and Infinity War and then was like, oh, this is a cool world. I want to, I want more of it. But I do get the sense that, like, the more properties that get added to the MCU, the more it feels really stressful to, like, enter into one of them. I mean, we experience this a little bit with Loki, right? Like, there's a lot going on outside of the show of Loki that makes it feel like you're missing things. And that was, to your as a point you made several instances in discussing Loki, a show that was connected but less connected to the rest of the MCU Way less connected. than, like, even other Marvel TV shows. Yeah, so I think, like, part of what's happening with Moon Knight or the decision behind Moon Knight to, to me is twofold. On the one hand, it's like, here's this cool thing that you actually don't need to know anything about in order to enjoy it. If You don't have to understand, like how Norse mythology comes into the MCU. You don't have to understand, like, who Captain America is. You don't even have to know who the Eternals are. Like, you don't have to have watched anything else. This is self-contained, and this can be your entry point in. Do you like this kind of, like, show? Do you like this the pace of the action? Do you like what's up here? Like, enjoy. And if you do, here's this whole other smorgasbord that you can, like, pick and choose from. So I think, like, that is part of it. And also, Marvel wanted to and needed to get, like, a little bit weird. And and Moon Knight is, like, some of its weirdest stuff. Like, Moon Knight is not the deepest of deep cuts, but it's a pretty deep cut. And the comics themselves, more recent runs of this are less, are less problematic. But, like, some of the stuff we talked about in the last episode is, like, like with the the colonialism and the racism and, and all of that, like it's way worse in the comics. So like it's a way to get weird and to revamp a, a set of source material that is like much more problematic than I think the MCU wants to be. Yeah, that's a set of interesting answers, particularly we're talking about this. So this is a 
we are recording way before these are being released situation, the week after the new Thor movie came out, where Danielle and I have both observed, like, the number of critics or number of people who, like, engage Marvel professionally, saying how sick they are of, like, Marvel overload. And so to have done that, to to have that experience where there's, like, this this constant churn of Marvel TV shows and also the new movies that have come out this year... But then to have something that potentially offers something different, I could see that also functioning as a bit of a reprieve from the lore, from the mythology, from all of that. Yeah, I would also say, and like this has popped up a little bit in some of the podcasts that you and I both listen to, but it's like definitely been at the forefront of my mind. Because I am an, an Eternals apologist. Like, I think that that movie is cool. I think The only was- one I've ever met. Not that I'm, like, asking everybody, like, what's your Eternals take in the first conversation, but still. But but this is not even, like, oh, like, there are definitely, like, story issues in that movie. But, like, what Chloe Zhao is doing, just in terms of the the movie itself and, like. She's using natural light, like, and an actual Kevin sunset. Kevin Feige's, like, it's a amazing. sunset exists. That was, that's like my favorite story about the MCU that I've heard in however many decades it's been in existence, it seems. But like I, and the Eternals kind of like Moon Knight, the Eternals is like the weirder stuff. Moon Knight is a little bit more Marvel horror. The Eternals is like Jack Kirby's on mushrooms or something, like just like wild, like, and, and trippy in a very cool way, like the comics anyway. Um, so I should try watching Eternals? Like, that's, that's, if something is gonna work for me, like, it would be the weirder, trippier stuff. Yeah, but like, weirder, trippy within the MCU is gonna, is not gonna be trippy enough for you. Yeah. And there's a whole scene where, like, maybe the Eternals are the reason that, like, people got the atomic bomb, and I just don't think that you could deal with that scene. <laughs> it's probably true. It's a good... It's and a it's, good. like, it's perhaps the most maligned scene in the entire movie, and it is both consequential and inconsequential and deeply frustrating. Yeah, well, I love that in a narrative <laughs> construction. So, Danielle, if, like, The Eternals was kind of weird Marvel, yeah. in which ways is Moon Knight trying or succeeding at being weird Marvel? I think, like... Having characters that people are not already familiar with is is weird Marvel, right? Like, I think that that, like, that there isn't Iron Man, that there isn't, like, someone who are, like, like there isn't Thor, right? Like, there isn't someone just dragging us to yeah. to see this. Like, I think that's part of it. I think also, like, the willingness to blend the, like, cosmic, cosmology, like, street-level stuff. Admittedly, there are pieces of that that are frustrating, and that gets us back to some of the stuff we talked about last week in terms of Egyptian cosmology. But, like, I do think the willingness to, like, think on both of those levels is, is part of weirder Marvel. And I would say the Eternals are doing a version of that, too. One thing that you said there is the notion that new disconnected characters are a way that this can be weirder Marvel. And I will like give the show credit. I think one instance where that really actually genuinely and truly works is the character I find most interesting in the show Moon Knight. And that's uh, Arthur Harrow, you know, and this is probably not surprising. You know, there's a some story about how this was in reference to Thor, that the Marvel villains are oftentimes more interesting, the most interesting part of Marvel. And like, of course I would be drawn to that just like in an abstract sense, but I do in this particular show 
find the Arthur Harrow character really fascinating for reasons that we're going to get into in several different ways in the segments. So like, I think on that level and granted, like I know you can have new villains or whatever that are not from the comics pop up in other shows that are more connected, but that's the one part of the quote unquote weird Marvel that I think does work for me in some way in this show. Yeah, what's interesting about Arthur Harrow is, like, he's in, I think, one issue of the comic, and this will make you mad, I think. But he's, Great. like, can't wait. somewhere in the Yucatan, like, doing Nazi experiments. Like, uh, like, I thought you were going to say, like, doing Ayuska, but... Um. <laughs> <laughs> he's, a, he's, like, a super minor character in the comics that they've, like, made this central figure. And I think... I think the casting of Ethan Hawke has a lot to do with that because I think like he's giving a master performance of this character. Like, yeah, he plays cult leader like real well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I mean, and obviously Oscar Isaac is a good actor. Like, I just I don't think the material that they're giving him is the greatest. But like, I think Arthur Harrow is given material so that Ethan Hawke can fully demonstrate that. Yeah, and I would say, like, there are moments where I agree with you on the, like, material that Oscar Isaac is getting, but I do think Oscar Isaac's performance against himself is incredibly impressive, and the, like, all of those scenes where he's, like, talking to himself in the mirror, I find incredibly compelling. I can't get over the dialogue, but that's, uh, like, fundamental, I think, yeah. just a discriminatory difference between us. Can I build on something you actually, like, said in one sentence aside a couple minutes ago? Build away. And that is that Moon Knight becomes a, like, way to do Marvel horror. Mm-hmm. Can you say more about, like, either from the, like, meta perspective of the creators or your experience watching it, how or why that's the case here? Yeah, I mean, we ch- we chatted about this a little bit beforehand, but there are like these moments in this episode in particular, and there are some moments in the in the, the last episode where we have these like jump scares, right, or like sequences that lead to jump scares. So, like in the in the first episode, that sequence in the hallway where he gets into the elevator, and then in this one, the sequence in the um, like in the, the storage, storage facility. Units. Yeah, yeah, yeah where, like, you see Conchu flashing in and out, right? Like, that... And I would say even, like, Conchu as, like, the the version of him we get, sort of, like, mummified, that, to me, has horror elements. And I believe the directors, the two directors of this episode, um, Justin Benson and Aaron Moorhead, I believe that they are people that got their start in like some indie horror stuff if i'm not mistaken which yeah i mean yeah they you know resolution vhs viral spring the endless and chronic yeah these all appear to be like indie horror to your point yeah and i would also like that clicks into another point which is all of the marvel shows up until this one at least to my knowledge have the same person directing the entire series and Moon Knight doesn't. Moon Knight has different directors. Like, we had a different director last time. I believe we'll have a different director the next episode. So, like, the idea that maybe we're dipping our toe into the horror genre, but we're not fully in, which I think, like, we could also sort of read this episode in that way. Like, there are elements of horror here, but, like, it's not fully... That's not fully the genre we've, like, d- we, we've jumped into. I would agree with that. I mean, there's... I literally wrote down there are some horror aesthetics here yeah. in my note through basically the moment once 
Steven enters the storage unit, the specific storage unit. Then obviously, particularly when he is in the hallway, they had pre-established when the employee walks into the storage unit, the way the banks of lights turn on and off. And to your point, then the way that Khonshu is appearing and disappearing in multiple places and the way then that they are shooting that with regards to the lighting, but also the sound design of that all is like straight out of a horror movie in certain ways can always count on you to bring up the sound design, which is something I really appreciate because I don't pay attention to it at all, <laughs> even though I write about sound. So. That's true. Only one of us writes about sound in their academic work, and Yikes. it's not me. <laughs> Yikes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so I have a flip side version of the original question that I okay. posed to you. So if this is something that Marvel is trying to do that is somewhat different or somewhat disconnected mm-hmm. or entirely disconnected from the rest of the MCU... What then are the stylistic or tonal or aesthetic consistencies or markers that demonstrate that nonetheless this is still a show within the MCU? Granted, like, Moon Knight was a character back in the comics, but thinking more tonally yeah. or stylistically, what would you say are the, like, consistencies across it and the other Marvel TV shows or it and the Marvel Cinematic Universe? I think two things jump out at me. The first is that, like, each of these shows seems to have, like, a central question that it's pursuing. So I think the question... Look at Danielle setting up our segue here in two minutes. um, I I think that if the central question of Loki was what makes a Loki a Loki, right, like, or versions of that question, then, like, it seems like the, the central question here, at least the one that I'm picking up on, is, like, what is real or, like, what constitutes reality? How grounded is that reality? Like, a version of that. So I think, like, having a central question that we're pursuing throughout the the arc of the show, to me, seems to make it something, make it an MCU property. I would also say there being a central focus on one character, right? Mm -hmm. So Loki Mm -hmm. is a character study of Loki, obviously. There are other characters that we get in there, but it's, like, Probably, like, in the most meta-sense, a character study of Loki. We get multiple Lokis. Yeah. This is... And, like, Moon Knight, part of the purpose is to introduce Moon Knight as a character into the MCU. So Moon Knight is the focus that we are getting. We get Arthur. We get... um, I was about to say May, which is her actual name. We get Layla, right? Like, we are getting these other characters, but, like, we're really focusing in on Moon Knight and on the relationship between Mark Spector and Stephen Grant so far. I think, like, similarly in WandaVision, like, they're, like, the arc follows Wanda. And, like, so I think each of these has not only a central question or sort of, like, theme that it revolves around, but also is focused in on a character in a way that it's maybe, like, still unsatisfying in a six-episode version of this would be really unsatisfying in a, like, two-hour movie. And I'm just thinking back, we were having this conversation about Thor over text a little bit, but, like, the first Thor movie was boring. Like, it's not that interesting. There are fun pieces of it, but it's, like, boring, and it's two hours, and then the second movie is also just, like, a train wreck. It's only when Taika gets the gets the reins for Ragnarok that it, like, that Thor becomes an interesting character. I would also say, like, the first Captain America movie is, like, boring and there's like all of this like long drawn out like how the how Captain America becomes Captain America that I'm just like I don't care about right 
then we get Winter Soldier and I'm like, ooh, this is a fun movie. So I think like something that the MCU is doing is like using these TV shows to like give a more expansive version of that backstory in these smaller segments. Like it's not working for everybody and I recognize that, but it's for me much more satisfying that we sort of like get a little bit more time with these characters, but it's not like an event like going to the theater. I don't know if that makes any sense. No, that does make sense. And the way you approach that question also intrigues me and in that you focus on these kinds of what is the thematic structure? What are the thematic projects that are contained within the MCU? Yeah. Um, which is an interesting way of answering that question. Cause like I was in some ways thinking more about like, it seems to me that the, style of banter or humor is a consistency, right? I would assume, or the way that action scenes are shot or fight scenes are shot is a consistency, even though each of the directors or writers or showrunners are going to like put their own spin on how those action scenes work. I was in some ways thinking more about like that kind of stuff and what unites or what connects, um, or puts Moon Knight within like the broader MCU assemblage. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, like, I think that that stuff also, I think you're, you're right about that, that like action sequences or CGI sequences, like yeah. in the shows. You'll notice that I didn't, I, I, I forewent several opportunities <laughs> to rag on the MCU and my what list of what makes them consistent. I, I do recognize that. And I, appreciate <laughs> it. I appreciate it, but I just, I know that it's there, so it's yeah. okay. Yeah. Um, Yeah, I think, but I think that question for me is just like, it's a bigger question, right? The action sequences or the, the, the banter or like, you know, and I sort of like in John speak, what they think is funny, but what's not actually funny, all of those. Which to be fair, my version of what is funny is we've determined many times on this program are, is not exactly correct in most senses of the term correct. (laughs) Yeah, but like I, I think that you're right to to point to those things. I think I'm just more interested in the in the broader structural stuff, mm-hmm. in part because like I'm interested in in like engaging these episodes or projects as like part of a like a, a broader set of texts, as evidenced by my entry in the MCU and politics um, volume that's coming out. Correct. Okay, so you mentioned, I mean, this is the last thing for the general discussion, that one of the commonalities or things that's, you know, persisting across or is continuous across the different Marvel shows and maybe Marvel shows and movies is that they have a central question. You suggested this question is one about reality. Is that something, like, the obvious, well, why is that the question has to Mm -hmm. do with Stephen Mark and the dissociative identity disorder kind of structuring fact of the show. But like, what other ways do you think the show is trying to engage that question? So I'm not going to answer that now. Okay. Because I think it will come in. I think the, the way that we're seeing it now is the Stephen, Stephen Mark Conchu mm-hmm. situation, like how Layla comes in and it kind of like turns things fully upside down. I would also say when Harrow says to says to Stephen, like, were was it that you were easy to break or was it that you were broken already? Like, like which I take as another version of that question, mm-hmm. and and like 
this is early on when he's talking to the security guard and the security guard goes, it's still you, bruv. And Steven goes, that's not me. And it's like very clear to us that it's Mark, right? Like just the, the, the look on the camera, but yeah. that, and I would say like the other piece is the way that this episode starts with Steven waking up with a start from a dream and sort of jumping out of bed. Like that idea dreaming, what is real, what is not, like that to me is like another, another version of it. This is not something you've seen. And so I I don't, and it's not really a spoiler, but basically like in the new Dr. Strange movie, Dr. Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, one of the characters says, you can spoil me on on Dr. Strange. (laughs) Well, it's not really a spoiler. (laughs) One of the the characters says like, what you see in your dreams is what's happening in, in the other, in like, in the multiverse, like other yous in the multiverse. So, like, again, the, like, what's real, what's not real, like, I think those are the ways that at least in this episode and the last episode, we're getting it. I think it gets more, let's say, more complicated as the series goes on. It sounds like you want to go back to the cave with Deleuze and Guattari, is what your answer tells me. Always. <laughs> Bring that tattoo. <laughs> yeah, it's coming with me. Um, I'll, have to get an, I'll have to get another one to balance my We'll add it to our owl tattoo. Great, an owl assemblage. Which I think Honestly, we got some clarity on what the owl looks like. Um, yeah. So I hope sometime in the future we can like I, display this on the The minute Twitter. that summer is over and I'm not going to be in water... We're doing it. Great. Troy, here we come. Troy, here we come. <laughs> Should we go on to the segments? Let's dig into the segments. All right. Marvel Splaining maybe is a harder segment to do on this show, given everything we just talked about for the first 25 <laughs> minutes. Yeah. Um, so I'll just ask you a question that I think I know the answer is, like, just wait and we'll learn more. All right. So, Danielle, bruv, do we know anything about the reasons for <laughs> or <laughs> the mechanisms by which Kanchu switches or changes their avatars? Like, how or why does Kanchu move from one avatar to the next? We're going to get more on Kanchu's avatars later, so I'm not going to answer that question. Okay. I'm ready for the Easter egg hunt. Oh, my I, God. I came prepared. You came prepared? I'm excited. What do you think are Easter eggs? Okay, um, is the French poet that Layla and Steven talk about somewhere, pop up somewhere else in the MCU? That's a, that's a, like, I don't think so, but I wish that was the case. (laughs) See, that's the thing, is that that's very much a, like, I believe you pitched to the new Easter egg hunt is things that I think are or wish were Easter eggs to the rest of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and that's very much a, like, that one's for me. Listen, that one's for me, too. Okay, I've got another that one's for me. Okay. Uh, If you call, remember back to, it's like, I think the second episode, or maybe the third episode of Loki, we had a long discussion about uh, the goat and the jokes about the goats and why are goats funny. So I would like to think that the goats that are present in, like, the little utopian dystopian town of Arthur Harrow (laughs) is a reference to Loki's goats. I I hope that's the case. In my brain, the references to the goats in the new Thor movie, which, like, Goat Boat makes an appearance, which is, like, straight out of like, I've, Norse mythology. I've, I've heard the screaming goats uh, it's phrase fun. several, many times over the last Every week. time the goats screamed in the movie, I laughed really hard. <laughs> okay. Now I'm going to take my actual guess of what might be a callback. Or, okay. Uh, this, quote-unquote, security arena 
that our favorite security guard operates. This is at the beginning of the episode. It's not like, oh, here's like two cameras that show where you were. It's like Batcave, Batman, and like the folks around Batman have like set up this extreme surveillance system. And there's like literally dozens of screens. And I was like wondering perhaps that whatever more surveillance oriented Marvel character in the past, either hero or villain, has some sort of like elaborate surveillance system. It's not, though it could be. Um, so like Bolt, I would say like there is totally a possibility that the security company is like actually like linked to S.H.I.E.L.D. and so it's like surveilling enhanced individuals, right? Um, it's not, but like... What's an enhanced individual? Is that related to enhanced interrogation techniques because Loki was a show about the Bush administration? It's not, but it should be. <laughs> okay. Enhanced individuals are like superheroes, people with superpowers. Got it. Got it. It's what we call people when we're not able to use the word mutant yet, which I guess now we are, but like the word mutant hasn't been in the MCU, so like you'll hear, I don't think... Is in that show. a, like, rights situation? Yeah. Okay. It's, it's well, yes, and then also, it's, like, rights and capitalism. Because at some point, like, they were making comics, and they had to figure out how to talk about people with superpowers, but to call them something that weren't mutants because they weren't X-Men, because that's, like, a very specific thing. So, like, enhanced individual gets tossed around to do that. All right. This is not very so, interesting. <laughs> so we made it to Marvel Splaining anyway. We didn't even know it. I'm proud of us. I'm so proud of us. <laughs> okay. Should we dig into Gloss? Please. What do you think they are the most important elements that the character of Layla, played by May Calumwe, um, brings to this show? So on the one hand, I think, like, Layla offers stakes. Right, like before Layla offers stakes to the like Stephen Stephen Mark Conchu assemblage, <laughs> um, and I think in this episode we we find out it's not just that Mark is married to Layla, right? It's that Conchu um, has his eye on Layla for his next avatar, right. and so like Layla's in danger. And my understanding is that Conchu is using that fact to coerce Mark to do whatever it is Conchu wants Mark to do. Yeah, basically that's that's my read of it too. Okay, like that, and and that that is like part of why. Mark keeps saying to Stephen, like, don't give it to her, don't show her, like, don't, don't, don't show her the, um... Scarab. Scarab, thank you. I was like, Amit? No. The Scarab that, like... <laughs> Points leads to Amit. To, yeah. yeah, that leads to Amit's tomb. Um, because the more she knows, the more in danger she is. Not by Khonshu, but by, by Harrow, right? Like, that that's the... The other piece. Okay, so Layla is endangered both by Kanchu yeah. and by Harrow. Okay. Layla is endangered scariness. by Kanchu in the future and and by Harrow in the present. The more right. she knows about the scarab, the more she like Harrow is a threat to her. Okay, which like is a little like damsel in distress, and she's perfectly capable of holding her own. In fact, she's doing the saving in most of this episode. Yeah, so, I mean, and she escapes with the scarab from, like, the Harrow City Hall. Yeah. Uh, or whatever. She, 
cancel guild. The, my favorite line of the episode is when Stephen and Layla run up to that room and he's like, I'm going to die in some weird magician's like, <laughs> like storage room. I, do you want, so we're going to do one good joke here in a minute, but like that, the, maybe there were two. That was a decent line. It was a, I just was like, okay. I'm in. I'm done. Yeah, I mean, the question of whether she's kind of put into a damsel in distress position is a fascinating one because she is rescuing, but in a way that's, like, skeptical and questioning of Stephen as well and, like, drives a cool Vespa around London, (laughs) um, which Stephen is, like, very confused about how to handle being on the back of a Vespa. Um, And she, like, holds her own in the fight against the jackal at the end. Absolutely. Yeah, and I so I think there that there's an element of like Mark feels as though he needs to save Layla, mm-hmm. and Layla actually does not need saving. So yeah, so it's, it's a traditional damsel in distress story, just making the dynamics a little more visible than well, in, like, and Layla's doing narratives. the saving. Yeah, right? yeah, exactly. Like yeah. Stephen is the damsel in distress. Yeah, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which I guess like you can do that when you have this like weird tripod. Sure. Sure. True, true triad if I've ever met one. Was there anything um, else about Layla that jumped out at you? No, I'm suspecting we're going to get more from Layla uh, later on. And I mean, just general, this there, there's a worse version of the Layla character yeah. where she's only used to get further exposition out of Steven yeah. and or out of Mark. And like there are times where it's a little bit bordering on that, but I think mostly they avoid that trap. Yeah, I think that that's right. I, Layla is honestly my favorite character in this series. Um, but, and I think this is like a, she's also, she's like based on a character from the comics, but is not a character in the comics. So this is like created for the series. Through this episode, I really like her. And then like, I like her more as it goes on. Okay, so you had put on our list the suit and specifically about the like Steven suit. So I want to turn this over to you to either to talk about it or ask any questions you have. Cause then I have some thoughts on the suits, both of them. Okay. Um, I think that the suits are kind of cool looking. I, I thought I found that Steven's suit kind of cool looking in a more like suity way than costume of superhero, which is like the Mark full moon Knight. Yeah. Up, I imagine. And at the same time, it also looks like they're doing a bad imitation of the Watchmen uh, with yeah. Steven's suit. Um, and for all the problems that Watchmen had, and there were many of them, cool costumes was not one of them. So just like there's the sum in the, sum in the suit, there's a lot of like bad jokes, like schlocky jokes around the suit that happen uh, at the time in which Steven actually is costumed within it. Um, but the suits look pretty cool. Okay. So a couple of things. I don't remember when the Watchmen comic comes out. The, so Steven is summoning what is like known in the comics as the Mr. Knight suit. Okay. Um, and Mark is summoning the Moon Knight suit. In the comics, they're not connected to like different people. So Mm -hmm. it's not like Steven only summons Mr. Knight and Mark only summons Moon Knight in the comics. In the comics, they're just like, Summonable. <laughs> they have sort of like different purposes and different powers, and they and they like, yeah, they serve different purposes like within storylines. Okay, that is like less important here. Here they have made it so that Stephen, when Stephen summons the suit, he summons the like Mister Knight version, 
And Mark summons the Moon Knight version, a reminder to the audience that these are different people, but they're connected. Question I have for you, I have more to say about this. So the question I have for you is like, if, so you are now in Steven's uh, situation. Okay. You did not know that you have this other like personality as a superhero. Sure. Um, you happen to have this like super strength and are incredibly capable, but you don't know it. Someone is screaming at you, some in the suit, and you've just, like, seen yourself talking back to you in the mirror and feel like you're going insane. What's the suit that you summon? I'm pretty sure it's, like, the most extremely florally printed yeah. button-down <laughs> shirt that exists, but yeah. to, like, simulate the my state of confusion and unrest, yeah. um, it's, like itself like a kind of swirl of the, the floral patterns are like swirling in the shirt yeah. itself um and that's that's what i think is happening yeah for me it's a bathing suit <laughs> <laughs> that's the source of the special power that's the source of like swim team danielle special powers swim team danielle cleans up man um, no doubt, no doubt. But, but and yeah. to, to your point, so Watchmen, the comic, is uh, 86 and 87. So this is after the first appearance of Moon Knight and yeah. after the first volume of the Moon Knight comics. Volume 2 starts coming out in 85, according to the internet. Yeah, and I can't. I don't remember. I'm not, like, super up on my Moon Knight stuff. So I would assume that, like, there's... And just the way that you're laying out the years there, like, there's crossover in terms of, like, what's happening when. So it's possible that, like, Mr. Knight only appears later and is, like, a riff on some of the Watchmen stuff. But, like, that's a, the version we get in the show is not, like, made up out of nowhere. So I think it's, like... There was a lot of. I was. I wasn't. I wasn't like accusing them directly no, no, of ripping no. off Watchmen, but I'm just saying those were the vibes that I got. Because, yeah, I don't yeah. think that's wrong. I, I think like there's a like that sort of cross pollination feels very comic booky to me, especially when it came like, especially when it came to like Marvel. DC and then like Watchmen. Like there's a lot of like swirling about there. Awesome. In in good and bad ways. <laughs> no comment. Yeah. All right. So the scene ends. Are we agreed, Danielle? This, <laughs> the fight scene ends in like first on the like ramparts and rooftops of, and then in the courtyard of an Anglican church? Question mark. I feel like you always want to make this church talk, <laughs> but. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I'm, I'm, I, that wasn't how I was reading it because I'm never thinking about churches, but like, I think that's right. Or, I mean, that's the only way that I could explain the architecture because they're like not at Oxford or Cambridge. Right? Well, like, why is there a steeple on the ground? There's not a steeple on the ground, is there? But I, that, well, whatever, like whatever the jackal, it looked to me like the jackal gets impaled on like a church steeple or spire or something as the jackal is like chasing Mark around, yeah. which I like thought, and, and part of it is that I want it to be that because I want to assume that they're like saying something about <laughs> the way that the like Anglican church or Christianity more broadly, like destroyed previous cosmologies or subsumed some of their elements into something new. So that's in my spirit of generosity how I want to read that. Listen, I'll give it to you. I wasn't reading it like that. I like that reading. And like, yeah, why not? 
We'll let you be generous this time around. Thank you. Can I be less generous? I mean, do you even have to ask? <laughs> Someone <laughs> needs to stop them from doing, like, the corniest, like, worst possible slow-mos and freeze-frame shots. Like, just stop, <laughs> please. It's in, like... Is there a version of a freeze-frame that you would ever like, though? Like, agreed that these are very corny and terrible. But, like, is there a version that John McMahon is into? I'm sure there is. It has to be, like, really pretentious, but yes. Right. So, like, <laughs> I mean, I think this is you just being like, I don't like this. I'm like, okay, we, I, I, listen. I, I do, I do want to make a point, though, is okay. that is that, like, my guess is that the make creators of the show would say this is a way to, like, slightly bring in elements of, like, the actual graphic novel format into a moving picture uh, sort of format. Yeah. But there's got to be a better way to do it, my guess. <laughs> well, we're going to get Bro, more of it. There's like a very... Oh, no. <laughs> not a... I mean, something like a criticism that's been like railed against the MCU TV shows and Moon Knight, I think, more than others. Though I do think that this is one of the more heavily enjoyed shows that Marvel has. But, like, a big criticism on the MCU TV shows is just, like, that the CGI budget is not big enough. And it's, like, if the budget's not big enough, then, like, don't do the CGI stuff. But I think, like, your read on it that, like, this is to get some of the comics, like, maybe some of the images from the splash pages, like, makes sense to me. Yeah. And also, I mean, there were these articles that came out... uh, maybe in June at some point about how, about why the VFX and CGI and so many things like the hook was Marvel, but also other things as well mm-hmm. are looking worse and worse. And like the way that's tied to labor conditions yeah. and the industry and stuff, they're pretty interesting. So presumably that's a part of all of that story as well. Yeah. And I think like that's not disconnected from this question of budget, right? Like, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. like, terrible labor conditions under like budget constraints just seems be better. <laughs> like yeah. corporation be better. You're making billions of dollars. Like get out of here. Yeah. As you said earlier, capitalism is, uh, is a problem here. <laughs> All right. You were, um, we're on your one good joke. We've, we've gotten one decent joke already. Yeah. So what's the one good joke that you had before this? Uh, when the security guard, Tells makes it like Hounds of Baskerville reference at Steven. Um, I genuinely <laughs> laughed at that. I would laugh even harder. I'm going to pretend in like my headcanon that this is a way to like di- take a dig at Benedict Cumberbatch, who is both <laughs> Doctor Strange and Sherlock Holmes. And so I'm going to pretend that this is like some Cumberbatch beef and that that was why they made a Hounds of Baskerville joke. I'm, you know, I'm here for it. But I, I laughed that. even before I had the thought of, I hope they're making fun of Cumberbatch. So. I mean, like, I'm all for making fun of Cumberbatch. <laughs> Great. Um, another, like, headcanon reference, and this one I like less. Are we supposed, and this is like a little bonus Easter egg, except it's outside of the MCU, is, like, the specter of Mark Spector a James Bond joke, given that this is a show that's set in the U.K.? I also was like, is this a James Bond joke? I honestly, I don't know, but I have the same thoughts. So I, you know what? Let's read it as such. 
All right. Um, and finally, as you know, I've been joking throughout. Uh, this show loves a good bruv, um, both from the security <laughs> guard and from Oscar Isaac, particularly Stephen, because obviously Mark has the quote unquote American accent. But Stephen loves a good bruv in his conversations. John texted me yesterday saying, "I will be I will be referring to you as bruv for the entirety of our podcast tomorrow." And I was like, "I'm in. Done. Yeah, I love it." And maybe the goal should be I do that for the rest of Moon Knight, just to really, like, get into the universe and get into the world. Yeah, it's really just prepping me to, like, go to London in a couple That's of That's true. You'll be there soon. It's me, Oscar, and May. And Kate. <laughs> running around. And Kate. Yeah. I think that you should scout the location of this fight, see if it was indeed an <laughs> Anglican church. And I know that, like, that goes against many of your core values, but I'm going to ask you to do it nonetheless. I'm not trying to be inside that Anglican <laughs> church. I'm not. That's not what I'm asking. <laughs> the, the, the fight oh, no. takes place outside, but, yeah. like, check out this little courtyard steeple situation. I can't imagine Caitlin is going to be, like, excited about, like, oh, let's find if Marvel like, staged <laughs> a fight here. Great. I'm on no, Team Kate, you. obviously. Yeah, you're, you're on Team Kate. <laughs> Meanwhile, my mom and my brother saw Thor, like, the minute it came out, and I had to wait a day, and it was very frustrating. Yeah. Did you like Thor? I actually really liked it. I said this to you over text, but, like, I think people are just, like, there's, like, something weird happening with expectations. Listen, are there parts of Thor that I, like, wish there was more of? Yeah. Was it annoying that Taika was like, this movie is so gay? And, like, there is definitely gay stuff in the movie. I but definitely like, read the article of, like, if you're going to call it a gay movie, make it gayer. I did read a couple of those for the schadenfreude, uh, for the queer schadenfreude. Yeah, I, of course. So, like, would I have liked King Valkyrie to have a queen? Yes. Like, give Tessa Thompson a queen. Make it Sif. Like, let's just, like, get on with things. That stuff aside, I thought it was super creative. Gore the God Butcher is a phenomenal villain, which, like, most people are saying anyway. And, like, I thought most of the, like, uh, Jane Foster, Mighty Thor, and, like, uh, Thor, like, Chris Hemsworth Thor, like, that stuff worked really well. And there are some pretty cool needle drops. It's, like, a lot of Guns N' Roses, which, like hits a nostalgia sweet spot for me. So, All right. One final uh, note in gloss is that as we talk about you, when you go visit the church, I'm also wondering the what it evoked for me the most I'm now realizing is the church and, like, the East Village, um, not even East Village, in, like, Union Square area, just south of Union Square in New York City, where it's, like... Like St. Mark's? No, not St. Mark's, but the, it's like on like, I don't know, Broadway and 12th or something like that. Okay. Um, and the courtyard of that particular, uh, that particular church were the vibes that I was getting from the courtyard. Now that I think about it a little it bit. It feels more. like the church that was like in Sex and the City season one. I have seen some Sex and the City episodes in my day, but like I couldn't There's place an that episode church. where Samantha is like in love with a friar or like a priest or whatever and calls him friar fuck. <laughs> 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 and like donates to the church and like goes to mass and like does all these things and and like ultimately the the like friar or whatever like doesn't like <laughs> Not interested, not able not to... Not interested. Uh, not able to... Uh, it's actually pretty funny. You know. But there's, like, a church with a courtyard, and it feels like what you're describing and what is happening in this show. All right. 
Should we head on to minor character of the week? Yes, I've got the minor character this week. Um, it's gra- it's the Grace Church courtyard, courtyard, Broadway between 10th and 11th. So I think me saying Broadway in 11th or 12th when I haven't lived in New York since 2016, I'm going to take very it. impressive. I'm going to take it. I'll take it. I have 10 points for you. All right. I apologize. I interrupted your minor character of the week. No, I'm, I'm glad that we like got some clarity on that and that you were very close. Um, minor character of the week, the jackal. Yeah. Like, <laughs> clear choice. Clear choice. Love when the the imagery around like smashing things, but there not being anything there, like a big dent in the car, you know, like, and then Layla um, smashing the bottle over the jackal's head so that she can see it because otherwise, like, she can't see it. It's just this like invisible force. I just thought, like, one, it gets around the problem of like bad CGI actually pretty well it like solves a little bit of the budget problem. And then also it's just like, it was cool to watch. I will say though, that like one of the most intriguing things visually about this show to me is Conchu Mm -hmm. and like the Jackal is on that list as well. So I actually would have liked, and I, and I understand the character storytelling reasons why like the Jackal has to be invisible at times, but I thought that I think the Jackal's cool looking and like, same. You know, I'm sorry. Like, I I think it should have been Mark Spector. Like, I think that objectively, the Jackal is a probably better fighter than Mark Spector, even if the show can't let that happen. But it wasn't Mark Spector that beat it. It was the suit, which is... Fair enough. Which is conscious. Like, like your point is actually right, right? Like, Mark couldn't beat it. And and neither could Steven. Like, their abilities only go so far without the suit. Got it. That makes sense. I can't. I, you wanted. I, I, you like, wanted. <laughs> I, I like to point out that I just said that makes sense. Um, so I think that's a sign to move on. We got a politics in the MCU. <laughs> so something um, that I was thinking about in this episode is just like the view of the police that it presents, and I was thinking especially in terms of like, obviously it's not it's not police. But, like, that's the vibe we get when, like, the two cult members come to Steven's apartment. I mean, they're posing as police officers, right? Right. They're posing as police officers. They, and they sort of barge into the apartment. They are interrogating him. They take him away in the car. They're searching his apartment. Um, All of these things. And then when they get in the car, they're like, who said police, right? And so, to me, that was like a oh, this show is, is like, at least giving us a little bit of commentary on, like, the ease with which this power can be abused. I think that's the key point. It's not, like, a Cab Sylvie level. No, it's not a Cab Sylvie. <laughs> but it's not, like, it's not ten steps away from that, you know? Yeah. It's five. It's seven uh, okay. steps away. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the it's the power that simply flashing the badge and using an assertive voice and exercising what would be the legal prerogatives of a police officer. Um, Even in like, you know, a a state in which policing functions somewhat, but not entirely differently than it does in the U S where I think that calling attention to that power, that authority, that authority and like a dictionary definition, but also a kind of like political theory, legal definition Mm -hmm. of authority gets put on display very closely here yeah. in, in this episode. Yeah, I, I think that that's right. And I I mean, I appreciated that. I don't want to go too far in complimenting it. 
but I appreciated the sort of like the troubling of of that ease or that authority, even if just for a moment. Especially because the show, the, the, the plot mechanism of them posing as police is to then deliver them to the space of the, like, compound where questions about retribution, justice, punishment, yeah. evil, morality, all of those are directly debated um, in a deeper way than, like, a the police or a police officer could ever enact on their own terms. I think that that is is absolutely is absolutely right. Do we want to maybe think a little bit about from Mark trying to take over the body over and over, right? Yeah, and at one point after Mark has taken over the body, Stephen says, "You quote, you have no right unquote to do yeah. this." And the framing of it in terms of right, like raises questions about bodily autonomy or the questions or the extent to which we might claim rights in our own personhood or own bodily autonomy or bodily integrity, which is then of course um, shot through in this particular show with the dissociative identity disorder part of this. And then raises like the broader question for, I think both of us probably is the political theory component of this is that how does disability very, very broadly understood change or shape or challenge the way that individual rights tend to be conceptualized like in the kind of like Euro-American Western canon. And here, like I think we're thinking, considering the same book, and that is a wonderful book by Stacey Clifford Simpligan, The Capacity Contract, where she's thinking about the idea of um, like intellectual disabilities, if I remember correctly, the term that she uses with regards to Plato and Locke in John Rawls. Yeah, and this question of like what what is the thing that then guarantees that one has rights? Like what Mm -hmm. kinds of benchmarks or capacities or like abilities does one have to show in order to, to like gain rights or have access to rights. And I think one of the things that she's critical of, and one of the things I think this show shines a light on is like the question of mental capacity. And I think that quote from Arthur Harrow from earlier, like, are you just easy to break or you, were you broken already? That idea of being broken, I think is connected to this question of, of rights and of bodily autonomy. Like all of these things are wrapped up together in this show. I agree with you there. What are the political questions, bruv, that you see the <laughs> avatars raising for us? Oh, well, bro, I'm not going to be able to say it without laughing. Yeah. So that was the other, another thing that I was thinking about, like, so we get that, um, Mark is the avatar of Khonshu. There's some relationship between Amit and Harrow, though. It's not like quite clear just yet. And so I was thinking about the way in which these avatars also raise questions of representation and like how, how, are people represented as uh, like connected to the question of like, how do people become the representations of these gods? Yeah. Like, I think that there, there's a longer, more developed version of that, that we might like get into in the future. But like, there is, there's a way for us to take some of the, the cosmology stuff and think about the like, the move from like civic to political in our own society. 
So would you say that the avatars of the Egyptian gods and goddesses are more uh, trusty or delegate representatives? Oh, boy. <laughs> oh, my God. Wow. There's been Literally so no much. Idea. <laughs> there's been so much extra cave in the politics in the MCU <laughs> this week. Um, but I, I, I want to pick up on that point, actually, oh, yeah. to say that one of the ways in which we, in a huge stretch of what the show is doing, but could say it's asking that those kinds of questions that you're pursuing, Danielle, are ways in which power relations and power relations that refer to some sort of like external force, in this case, cosmology mm-hmm. um, or theology, structure how representation functions in practice to that the power relations and the relationship to the external force at times direct and at times indirect so like what is then the relationship between harrow and his people in the the like commune community space how is that impacted by harrow's relationship to amit Right. And I think like we can extend a version of that question to like Mark and Steven and Conchu and like how their presence or actions are exist in relation to like those who are not imbued with powers from the gods. And this is the point of connection between this and the previous point of politics in the MCU, and that is what does the struggle between yeah. Stephen and Mark for who who's has control over the body, how is that related to these issues of power, these issues of representation as yeah. avatars? Well, because Mark says to Stephen in the mirror sequence in the storage facility, like, I'm... Conchu's avatar, so therefore you are too. But Conchu yes. is like not interested in Steven and calls him the worm in the earlier episode, right? Like he he said he's saying like give over the body, summon the suit, right? Like so it doesn't seem like the relationship to the bot between the body and Conchu's power is always the same or static. Yeah, and Stephen himself questions this, right? He says, after you have no right, when Mark has taken over the body, something like, you're eating away at me like a parasite, you're eating away at the body like a parasite. In response, Mark, like, kicks the mirror through which he is speaking with Steven, like, shatters the mirror, so, like, there's an attack on the self dynamic Mm -hmm. that's happening, and of course, there is, like, a church bell ominously tolling, because we have to have some cliche to this as well. Um, So that's, I think, like, the way that that conflict gets so... gets visibilized in in the show is also tied up in all of this. Yeah, no, I, I think that that is, that that's right. And so I wonder, and like this gets us back to a much earlier conversation in terms of like the purpose of the show. But I also wonder if like part of this show is an exploration of like what constitutes what is real. Like, I think there's also a version of that question similar to the Loki question, which is like, what constitutes the self? Like, and like, is it possible to hold multiple selves within one body? It sounds to me like you want a Fight Club Moon Knight uh, mashup uh, reunion event of the century. I mean, that's kind of what we got in the last episode, where he, like, (laughs) wakes up somewhere in, like, Austria or whatever, and is like, how did I get here? And then wakes up again, and, like, people are bleeding around him. It does, it's like, it's major Fight Club vibes. Sure. Okay. Well, what, Edward Norton was in the MCU, so that works, and... 
Brad Pitt has not been in the MCU, to my knowledge. No. I, I'm laughing because I... Who would you want your MCU alter ego to be? What does that mean? Like, if you, like, Steven... If, if this was Fight Club, if it's, like, MCU Fight Club, and so Edward Norton's alter ego is Brad Pitt, Steven's alter ego is... Mark Spector looks exactly like him. Yeah. Would yours be a different person or would it just be a more badass version of you? Um, more badass is an extremely generous interpretation of what <laughs> the altar would be in this scenario. I'm pretty sure I am like dark Dr. Strange and I don't know who Dr. Strange is or what he does, but I think that that's probably my vibe. Would you agree with that? Yeah, especially with, like, your pretentious takes. <laughs> yeah. And my, like, desire to be, like, let's throw it all into the black hole. I'm assuming that that's what a dark Doctor Strange would do. Yeah, that's not, like, super far off. Yeah, I don't know who mine would be. I don't know if it would be someone who already exists in the MCU or someone, like, who's not here yet. Yeah. I think I want mine to be Agatha Harkness. Ironically, I don't know who that is. On, ironically to all of this, one year... Uh, of course, during undergrad for Halloween, I went as the narrator from Fight Club. Um, Amazing. So that's Love. really ties. This is the one that really ties it all together. All right. So we head to the cave. We've been there for a while informally. Let's let's yeah. make a formal declaration. Let's let's dig into the cave. John, who are we meeting in the cave this week? In a real Danielle move, I'm going to turn us to uh, literature. Or yes. to, and so the thinkers that kept coming back to me, particularly in the scenes in the compound of Harrow's, like, Amit cult, or whatever yeah. you want to call it, are the kind of very closely paired readings in my mind and in the minds of many others of Ursula K. Le Guin's short story, The Ones Who Walk Away from Romela's, and then N.K. Jemisin's response rejoinder building off of that piece from a few years ago, The Ones Who Stay and Fight. And these are two short stories that I had, that I teach during the first week of my intro to political thought class every single semester. So they're things that are always kind of percolating in my mind. And I think there are, you know, so do, should we do a little plot detail about yeah, these two stories? I, th okay. I think, like, let's dig in a little bit because okay. I think the plot details are, are helpful here. Sure. So the Ursula K. Le Guin short story, The Ones Who Walk Away from Omelas, is set in this utopian question mark city of Omelas, which is this perfect society that is free of conflict, free of hierarchy, free of, envir of environmental discussion, uh, destruction. Um, it's set amidst a kind of festival that celebrates the city. Um, there is music. There is uh, cultural events. There are the farmers have brought the best of their harvest to the big celebration. We find out that, you know, there are like sex goddesses in the city. We find out that there is like uh, drugs, but it doesn't have negative side effects. And yeah. there's like beer, but that doesn't have negative side effects. And people don't need well, that in order positive. to live. Yeah. So this kind of very idealized city. And so I walk with my students through like, okay, well, what makes this, you know, a perfect city? What makes that believable or not believable? The narrator of the story is then, then tells us as readers, you're, you don't believe that the city is real. I understand what's happening. There's no way you believe that the city is real. And then the narrator says, well, let me tell you about one more element of Lamella's. 
And it turns out that in the city of Lamellas, there is a child that is kept locked in like a storage closet, tiny storage closet <sighs> in a basement in one of yeah. like the houses or estates of Lamellas and is abused, neglected, treated terribly. And the uh, understanding of the city is that that child, a child, has to be kept in that basement as the precondition for the flourishing of the rest of society. Is that an okay plot description? And then we find out that everybody in the city knows about the child. Some of them go to actually view the child, some just to look, some to, like, kick or beat the child. Yeah. And then the way that the story ends is the narrator talking about how some people walk away from Omelas. They don't know, you know, they have no particular destination in mind, but they know exactly where they're going or something like that is the final line. How's that for Le Guin? Honestly, that's a phenomenal Le Guin gloss. And that's a, it's a story that's got so much, but you've done a, you've done a great job. I think the, the part at the end, the part with like the people going down to view and also beat the child is like, to me, one of the most like, prominent and also heartbreaking pieces of that story. Yeah. So the thing, and I guess we're just going to make this a little corner for a second. So the yeah. thing that my students are usually most interested in is the fact that people have to know or do know that the child exists. And like yeah. that's the part of what is she doing by insisting that Gwen having the narrator insist that that's what the situation is like, what is that particularly doing for us as readers is the thing that my students end up being the most interested in. Yeah. I mean, I think that that is one of the most interesting parts of the story, but it's also like, it's exactly, that's like exactly what the story is about. Right. Like, like that's that, that's the precondition and the precondition isn't, isn't merely the existence, but like the knowledge of, of the child's existence. Right. And, and it's the, and it's that knowledge of the child's existence that in the narrator's telling is supposed to make this more quote unquote believable to yeah. us as readers, you know, in the real world in which Le Guin is writing. Yeah, and like the, that knowledge is like is that knowledge is complicity. Yes. And and so that that's the that that's the thing that the story is I I think attempting to highlight and remind us about like our complicity in the suffering, even, even if it's simply knowledge of that suffering. Yes, precisely. All right. So we've got Le Guin. We got have Le NK Guin. Jemison and Danielle has read a lot of Jemison. Yeah, but not this, not this particular short choice. This is uh, the ones who stay and fight. And this, I started teaching as an add on to Le Guin, I don't know, two or three semesters ago. So I'm a little bit less like here are the details and here are the beats. Not that I can ever tell a linear plot story that concisely anyway. Right. But Jemison is responding, uh, responding to Le Guin. And she describes the city of Amhalat. And in Amhalat, they have knowledge of America they have knowledge of Omelas, and they are self-consciously have attempted to construct a different kind of city, different kind of society, different kind of utopia in which there is no hatred, there is no discrimination, that any language that had been used in these other societies that had meant to be um, kind of negative or condescending has been turned into purely descriptive language, that there in this city as well is a big festival, the Festival of the Birds, if I remember correctly, or something like that. Okay. And and so it's also set to structurally mimic 
the ones who walk away from mimic is the wrong word structurally kind of uh, refer to the ones who walk away from Amela's. And so we get Jemison kind of building out her similar, but also slightly different version of this utopia mm-hmm. with this added element of making the critique of American, particularly racial injustice mm-hmm. and oppression, but also imperialism, also capitalism, more explicitly part of the story as opposed yeah. to being by implication as it is for Le Guin. And then like the cost or the price or the catch in Jemison city that she builds is that there are these group of people called quote unquote, the social workers whose job it is to find adults who have gained knowledge of hatefulness, oppression, discrimination, injustice, uh, negative language, so on and so forth Mm -hmm. from transmissions from America or from other parts of society. And these people are literally put to death so that they do not quote unquote poison the society of Amhalat, right? And so there is this way in which the, in the like climactic of an instating event of the story is a young child watches her father be murdered by the social workers because he had heard and was just barely beginning to spread some sort of kind of hateful, oppressive ideas in the city. And the narrator, and the narrator plays a similar role for Jemison as it does for Le Guin. Let me read kind of two short quotes that I think will capture something. Yeah. Then I promise we're going to get to we're going to no, get to. No, I love it. All right. So, quote: This is the paradox of tolerance, the treason of free speech. We hesitate to admit that some people are just fucking evil and need to be stopped. End quote. Then. Quote, the social workers know, therefore, that for incomprehensible reasons, the girl's father had shared the poison knowledge of R, R being America's world, with her, end quote. Right? So it's like in these two quotes in particular that I think are useful for pivoting back to Moon Knight, because like the structuring, one of the structuring assumptions of this little like society cult commune that Arthur Harrow has built mm-hmm. somewhere in London is this notion that the supposed vengeance or supposed justice that Kanchu brings, which we may itself question and it's worth questioning on its own terms, yeah. comes too late. And that like by having the power of Amit to like prejudge people as to whether they are good or bad, he can like prevent um or as he says, eradicate the choice of evil, quote unquote, in the first place to yeah. create a real quote, heaven on earth, end quote. So it is this kind of prejudging and predetermining of people's thoughts that are evil, where the cure is the taste of the disease. And that's why people ought to be killed through the powers that are in his staff. And so it's like, he is, I think, constructing a kind of society that bears some resemblance to the societies that are being Constructed yeah. by Le Guin and by Jemison. Okay, that was a lot. Danielle, your thoughts. Sorry, that went on no. for way oh longer God. than I anticipated. Don't apologize <laughs> because I think, like, the... So, one, I now I'm like, okay, now I need to teach these stories together, which is, like, such is the nature of our friendship. John does a cool thing in class, and I'm like, I'm going to do it, too. I stole this from somebody else. I forget who. I apologize. <laughs> like, I saw this. I Both the Let Me Teach Le Guin, and then somebody was like, well, if you're going to teach Le Guin, you should teach yeah. um, the Jemison also. And those are not original ideas. I just want to love disclaim. But I think, like, the both of these stories, bringing up both of these stories in relation to the Harrow compound, I think, and and this bigger question of, like, justice, which... 
I've taught Omelas before. And like, that's the question, right? Like one of the questions you teach, we teach Omelas around is like, what constitutes justice? Is there such a thing as, as like a, a pure or objective notion of justice? Like what's the relationship to like evil, right? Like all of those are questions that I think both of these stories raise and this idea of like prejudgment, which it seems like the Jemison is trying to like simultaneously preempt, but like allow enough of the like inciting events to happen so yeah. that the like the actions of the social workers are justified, right? Like, right. And crucially, in the Jemison story, like even though the man who is killed, his daughter, like witnesses this, mm-hmm. and then like has, of course, hateful things to say to the social workers. Yeah. They like take her in to like encourage her to become a future social worker. Now the question is left open of if she refuses at some point, is she killed? Like that's, I think an open question in the story, but like the final paragraph of Jemison is actually her turning more directly to address us as readers and be like, are you going to offer the daughter your hand or something to that effect? Yeah. If the the title of the story, right, the ones who stay and fight. The ones who stay and fight, yeah. Right? Like, fight for what? And, like, is staying... And I think, like, thinking both of these stories together in the same way, thinking, like, Amit's justice versus Conchu's justice together, it's like, is one of these, like, preferable? Is it preferable to walk away with the knowledge? Is it preferable to stay and fight? Like, even even when fighting might might lead to your own death, right? Like, is it preferable to judge before? And I know, like, we joked about this in the last episode, but when you were like, oh, the, like, I could have stopped Pol Pot and blah, blah, blah. I was like, no, that's, like, that's his whole thing, which mm-hmm. is absolutely ridiculous. And I think meant to show us how, like, out there this notion of justice is. Yeah. But also, there is something comforting about being like oh well it would have been nice if like those people were not in this world right like there's a there's a like a a naivete about it like there's yeah well yeah i mean there's a and of course like they're told different things with different purposes yeah but you know there's like there's more sophistication to the Le Guin Jemison version of these sure. questions than there are in the, like, should you kill baby Hitler version, which is, like, Arthur Harrow's version of the question. Um, right? I'm not wrong yeah. about that. No, 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 no. Um, you're, you're not wrong yeah. at all. But also, like, when you boil it down, it's it's different shades of the same question. Yeah. Right? No, I, I would, I would and totally the, like, agree with that. And the, like, Le Jemison is a much more interesting and entertaining and intellectual version of that. Yeah. I mean, and, and then... In the show itself, right, we have Kanshu themselves, like, insisting that they are, quote, real justice, right? Yeah. The kind they write, which has a more, like, vengeful element or retributive or rectificatory element, Absolutely. right? So, like, we're not going to do, like, an Aristotle Nietzsche version of, like, punishment. Oh, I was going to do an Oristia version. Okay, that's I guess. A, that, that I'd be fine with. But like, <laughs> I guess know, Aristotle Nietzsche we could also do. <laughs> no pass on both of them. Uh, I think we've left them both in the cave before. So, like, they're... Absolutely. Know, we can't bring them out right now. But, um, but, yeah, so, like, the, you know, 
there are two kind of then I think further questions that I'm particularly interested in. One is like this justice question, and I can't believe I'm saying this, but both Kanshu and Ahmed's notions of justice, right, are actual theories of justice. Yeah. But both unsatisfying, if unsatisfying yeah. for different reasons, and like the tension and kind of mutual unsatisfaction of them is seemingly something the show is interested in. And then secondly, like I think one other element of Moon Knight, but also of the two short stories that mm-hmm. we're talking about here, raise the questions of like what would the utopian city be? Yeah. And what would be the parts of it? And then what is the cost or kind of like constitutive outside or like structuring injustice to yeah. enable that just flourishing utopia to to exist? Because Minus the whole, let's just kill a bunch of people because, like, Amit says their bad part and, like, yeah. the magic staff. Actually, like, Hera's setup is pretty sweet. Like, I would like to, you know, <laughs> take me to there. Um. <laughs> well, and I think, like, the other side of that, right, is that the relationship that Mark and Steven have with Kanchu is much more complicated. In some ways, Harrow seems to just, like, allow his, like, person to be flooded by this idea of justice, and, like, there's this singular pursuit. Yeah. And Conchu, the like, Mark and Steven, to differing degrees, but I would say, like, end up on the same side of this, are not willing to simply be the, like, body through which the justice of the god flows through. Mark is doing this on the one hand, like we learned in this episode, because he doesn't want Layla to do it. Um, I think, like, it will get a little, we'll get a little more backstory on this also, um, going forward. But, like, it's not just, like, oh, we get a little bit of it in this episode when he's like, I saved you, like, I, I, like, saved you from dying or some version of that. Right, so there's like a an indebtedness in in the Mark Conchu relationship, and there's an unwillingness in the Stephen Conchu relationship, Stephen Mark Conchu relationship, that is not simply a this is the God's this is the God's word, and therefore I will do it. So like it's not as like that. There's that pushback and and degrees of unwillingness. I think mm-hmm. like. To me, if we're going to read this through the lens of justice, I think, like, that offers already, like, a more complex view or a more complicated way to understand, like, the working or the enactment of justice. Like, it's not just, it's not just easy, right? It's not just a magic staff. Indeed. And one of the reasons for that is that there is seemingly the show is suggesting, certainly Le Guin and Jemison are suggesting that human judgment about first of all what evil is and second of all what to do with evil mm-hmm. is a kind of like infinitely fraught and complex yes. question exactly. that is inextricable from the frailties of human existence or judgment or subjectivity or something like that as well yeah i think that that's absolutely right and just to to build on something you said earlier maybe as a way to to wrap up this conversation is that both the Amit and Kanchu versions of justice are like unsatisfying, yeah. right? Or, or limited, which to me says that like, it's not 
just one version of justice that like needs to be at work, right? Like it has to always be multiple understandings and like, um, manifestations of justice. Right. And that's the purpose of politics. That's the purpose of like thinking critically about politics. I tell my students every semester, not that they necessarily believe me, but like we're all thrown together in this world and like, we got to figure some shit out together. So we might as well be good at trying to do so. Yeah. It's a version. I was laughing before because (laughs) I was like, oh no, is the, is the answer like Rawls was right? No. Yeah. No, (laughs) but Kanchu and Amit make Rawls look better than I want him to. (laughs) Agreed. So. That's why we have Jemison and Le Guin. (laughs) Yeah. I'd much prefer them to any of the other figures discussed thus far. I think like Jemison and Le Guin get to come up with us. Absolutely. hundred percent. They are, they're superstars. Yeah, for sure. And like, I don't think we leave women down in the cave. Like green. I think that's something we've come to discover about this. And I'm cool with this. uh, I'm having emerged. Totally cool with it. Um, I think that we have come to the end of this episode. I believe so. I'm, I'm proud of us. I'm proud of us too, for many reasons. <laughs> Thanks as always to producer Amy. Unclear if she's listening to this one, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> I guess we'll find out. Um, next up in the feed, you'll have American season two, episode eight, new car. And then we've got Moon Knight episode three, moving heaven and earth with a new guest, our first Moon Knight guest, which will be exciting. It sure will. Uh, thank you so much for joining us on Not Quite Great Books. A TV podcast. Thank you for joining us on another episode of Not Quite Great Books, a TV podcast. It's created by Daniel Hanley and John McMahon, and indirectly, producer Amy. You can find us on Twitter at NotGreatBooksTV. You can email us at NotGreatBooksTV at gmail.com. If you have comments or questions that we might potentially read and respond to on air, subscribe, download, rate, review us, tell your friends to find us at Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, and Amazon Music, and Google Podcasts. We would like to thank Less FM for Electro Trend 60s, which is the music that you heard at the beginning and you are hearing right now. Until next time, go play some racquetball. <laughs> oh, I can't wait for what this is going to be. I don't even think it's that good. I just like, started to think about it in the middle of it. <laughs>